0: So we are continuing in the sermon series, the parables of Jesus. We started this series last week, and each week you will see that the title of the sermon is the parable of, and so this week is the parable of the strong man. And there is um, one verse in this case, similar to what it was last week. But to understand the context of this particular uh, parable, uh, as again it was last week, you need to look at the larger pericope of Scripture. And so we'll be looking at, if you turn to Matthew 12, we'll be looking at verses 22 through 30, Um, but first I just want to read verse 29, which is the actual parable of the strong man. So listen to what Jesus says. This is Jesus speaking. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts Be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray, Father, as we hear your word this morning, I just pray that you would illuminate us, our hearts, for what you would hold for us through this, your holy word. Amen. So I'm going to drink some water because after singing, my throat is scratchy. This is an interesting parable, and somewhere along the way, um, your hair may bristle a little bit on your arm. You might think, hmm, that's kind of hard to process. But I want you to hear what Jesus is saying through this text this morning and, and what it means. And so we start with another conflict of Jesus... And the Pharisees. You know, throughout his ministry, they butt heads. And uh, here is another case where uh, a man that is possessed, a demon that has in him, is brought to Jesus. And if you look at verse 22, it says, Then a demon possessed man who was blind and mute was bought, brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now, maybe some of you don't believe in demons, but the Bible says that there are demons, and there have been demons throughout time, and there are demons that, unfortunately, in this contemporary setting in which we live in today... Uh, there are still demons that are wreaking havoc. Now, it does not mean that every person that has a problem or every person that you think or see uh, is not dealing with life the way you think they should necessarily has a demon in them. But there are those that are human beings that are possessed. And what is interesting here is the man is brought to Jesus to be healed, and what does Jesus do? Jesus heals him. He's able to speak. He's able to see again. There is no question from the Pharisees or anyone that is there that the man has been healed. And so in verse 23, we hear in the text, all the crowd was amazed and was saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Can he? Could he be the Messiah? Because that's what they're saying. They're saying, could this man be the Messiah? There were people that were skeptical, but there were people that were wondering after this point in the ministry, and it's still early in Jesus' ministry, but they are wondering, could this be? Could it be possible that the promise that was made, That the son of David, the Messiah who would come, is here? Matthew's whole gospel was written to the people to answer and and, and to persuade them to understand the answer to this question. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. That's Matthew's purpose of writing to, to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah But the Pharisees make a very serious charge against Jesus in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, when they heard what the people had said, could this be? And they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons the ruler of the demons. And Beelzebub is another name for Satan, as you know. And the Pharisees were claiming that the only reason that Jesus could have cast out this demon in this man was that he was empowered by Satan to do so. A ridiculous thing to say just totally ridiculous. But you know, when people are threatened, often they will say things that are ridiculous. Matthew then gives us Jesus' response in verses 25 and 26. And he makes two points. Jesus in this makes two points. Listen to what he says in verse 25 and 6. And knowing their thoughts... Jesus said to them, I said last week, just remember that knowing their thoughts last week reminded us that Jesus knew all the thoughts of everyone. He knows our thoughts. You can't hide anything from him, even though the Satan often will tell you, oh, nobody will you know. Nobody, just whatever you think or see, only you will know. And here is just another reminder. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. Now then, how then will his kingdom stand? How then will his kingdom stand? His clear analogy here is internal conflict destroys kingdoms, cities, and household. It would be suicidal for Satan to give Jesus power to cast out demons because Satan wants demons in people. He would not cast out or give power to anyone to cast a demon out. What a ridiculous statement by the Pharisees. Satan, Jesus says, would not go against Satan. And then secondly, he says, and by the way, if Beelzebub cast out demons... In verse 27, he says, By whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, he's saying exorcism of the demons is something that the Pharisees accepted, and they did. They believed in exorcism of demons, um, and, and they would have those that would perform them. And so Jesus says, How can you condemn Jesus for doing or do, condemn me for doing the very same thing that you would applaud others for. This is a bizarre double standard that they are saying. And then in verse 28, Jesus says, But if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, or in other words, not the spirit of Satan, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so when Jesus drove out the demon in the man, he did not use any incantation. He didn't use uh, uh, magical rituals. Uh, What he did was cast out the demon by his authority and his power because he is God. The interesting thing is the Pharisees who would cast out or do exorcisms, they did it in the name of Jehovah God. Basically, they did it in the name of Jesus because Jesus is Jehovah God. He is God's son. He is God incarnate. And so the very thing that they claimed to exercise, Jesus is in front of them using the power of who he is as God's son, the chosen Messiah, exercising his power to cast out the demons. And they did not see it. They did not believe it. They didn't understand it. And then Jesus gives us this parable, the parable of the strong man. Or how can, and so this is the continuation, how or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property, property unless he first binds the strong man and then He will plunder his house. Then he will plunder his house. Now, the Lord is not giving us permission to go rob someone's house. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is talking about the kingdom of Satan. There are many human beings that are captive to the influence of Satan. Those that are being deceived by the forces of evil, those who are full of lies, emptiness, fear, hopelessness. And they are characterized in their entire life by the darkness of the kingdom of Satan. Despite the Pharisees' blasphemous accusation, it is clear which side they're on. They are not on on Jesus' side. They are not on the side of good or right. They are on the opposite side of where Jesus is standing. So look at this parable of the strong man. This parable is that Satan cannot bind himself, it would be against his nature. As I said, it would be against his nature to to cast out demons that were in someone when he is the very one who sends demons. He is not the one that sets people free. He is actually the one who binds them. The only person that can bind Satan is someone that is stronger than Satan. And so this parable of the strong man is about Jesus. It is about Jesus and his ability, his power, his strength in binding Satan. Jesus is stronger. Jesus has defeated Satan already in the wilderness, and he will defeat Satan at the cross. By his death and his resurrection, Jesus has conquered Satan and today Jesus moves in and he binds the strong man in Satan and frees the people from Satan's bondage Christ is the winner Satan is the loser Christ is the conqueror Satan is the conquered Christ is victorious Satan is defeated And that's the point where someone says amen. We need to rejoice in the fact that Jesus has already conquered Satan. He has bound him. And as hard as it is in this world, and in this world there is spiritual warfare that is happening over and over again. Satan is fighting hard against you. The closer you walk, you've heard me say it a hundred times, the closer you walk with Christ, the closer a church begins to live into what Christ is calling them to do, Satan is going to jump on their back and try to thwart that. He will discourage. He will bring about disunity in whatever ways that he can if we allow him to do that. Be of good cheer. Because of Jesus, we can be overcomers. In fact, we are overcomers by the one who lives in us. And then, I don't want you to forget how how this ends, because um, just remember... Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys to the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would no longer deceive any nation. Who is the strong man? Jesus. Because he is able to bind the one that is against us, against God. And then Jesus finishes this section with this verse. Verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In World War II, Sweden and Switzerland decided that they were going to be neutral. And let me tell you, neutrality in this battle is impossible, Neutrality in this battle is impossible. You're going to either stand with Jesus or stand against him. In World War II, when Sweden and, and Switzerland tried to be neutral, and they did not want to take sides, and, and they, they didn't want to oppose Hitler and the Third Reich, but actually they didn't realize what was going to happen. You see, this was no noble of them to say, oh, we're going to stand in the middle and, and we're going to split the fence here. And, and, and yeah, the Allies, well, we're not going to support them, but we're not going to support Nazi Germany and the Third Reich. And here's what happened. The Swiss banks helped fund Germans' fight. The Germans were able to borrow money from the Swiss banks to provide for their war effort. Was that being neutral? And what's more, Sweden and Switzerland, as they tried to remain neutral when it came to the Allies and their cause, they couldn't do that either. They ultimately had to take a side. The Pharisees, as we look at what happened in this text, as this man that is demon-possessed comes to, to Jesus, they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus cast out this demon. And the Pharisees look and say, Whoa, wait a minute, he's just doing this by the power of Satan. They didn't want to be on Jesus' side. The fact that Jesus actually had the power to do this. This is impossible, they would say. And they stood against Jesus. And today, you will either stand with Jesus or you will stand against Jesus. If we fail to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior over our life, we have opposed God. And we are giving aid. And comfort to the enemy. I told you this might be a little hard. This passage gives us such important insights to the spiritual battle that is taking place with Jesus at that time and with us today, as followers of Jesus, as part of the kingdom of God, his church. The church is to fight against the forces of darkness, the forces of evil. This is what it's meant for the church today when Jesus says, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined in every city or household. That means individual. When you read that, that household divided against itself will not stand. You cannot straddle the fence. Abraham Lincoln used this quote from this passage, Matthew 12, in his 1858 speech as he was running for Senate against Stephen Douglas. And this was one of, as we know there are other famous speeches, but this was one of Lincoln's favorite or famous speeches Though he was not a Bible scholar, I think he understood two principles that Jesus was saying in this text. And the first is that true unity requires agreement on essential truths. True unity requires agreement on essential truths. In his speech, Lincoln was take was talking about slavery and i want you to listen to what he said and i quote a house divided against itself cannot stand that is a quote from this passage i believe the government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free i don't expect the union to be dissolved i don't accept, expect the house to fall, but I do expect it to cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other thing, End quote. At that time that he spoke in 1858, Slavery was legal in the southern states, and it was outlawed in the northern states. And Lincoln believed that there was no way that this nation was going to stand divided against itself. And we know what happened. The Civil War happened as we battled against each other. But five years later, not as senator, but as president, Lincoln would abolish slavery through his Emancipation Proclamation. There could be no true unity in our nation as long as there was disagreement over that issue. In a similar way, the church... The church requires agreement. And I want to give up and lift up two things to you. First is the agreement about Jesus Christ. The point of Jesus in this verse 30 when he says, Who is it? Who, he who is not with me is against me. Jesus is saying, look, either I am the Messiah, you believe that, or Not. Either you believe I am the eternal son of God or not. You believe that I died on the cross and rose from the dead or not. There is no middle ground. So we have to be in agreement about who Jesus is. There are so many today, and I will tell you, and it's okay if you like it, I'm not chastising you for it. But I do not like the coexist sticker on the back of the windows that I see. Because in essence, what that is saying is, Christians, Jews, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, New Agers, atheists, it doesn't matter what you believe, we're just sing all kumbaya and we're all in the world together and we just live together and just live in peace together because we believe all the same thing together. And that is not right. That doesn't mean that we are rude to others outside of the Christian faith or what we believe. We respect them and love, but we share the truth in love. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. And all true Christians either stand on the side of Jesus or you don't. And if you don't, then you're not a true Christian. Because you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Unfortunately, today there are a lot of people in name only Christian, claim to be Christian, but they're really not. And we often probably need to remember that you can go to church, you can be a nice person, you can get baptized, you can recite the Apostles' Creed, you can sing a praise song with great enthusiasm and still not be a Christian. A Christian is someone, that genuine Christian, is someone that has stopped trusting in him or herself that has come to a place of understanding it is only because of Jesus that I am saved, that I am a Christian, that has stopped thinking that I am good enough or I can do this myself. You have got to put all of that to bed and put your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior to be a Christian. To believe in him and who he is and what he has done, that you have eternal life. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that we can know that we are saved. It's not a question. I have run across people that have said, I think I'm saved. And I say, You think you're saved? Mm, you're probably not saved you need to get a a different thought here because if you truly believe and if you truly understand what Christ has done for you, then you're on the side of Christ and you are saved and there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thanks be to God for that. And so we have to stand on the side of Jesus in this text The Pharisees certainly were not. In our day, we have to truly say, I stand with Jesus. That's number one. Number two is this, the lack of unity is, or excuse me, I'm sorry, the belief in the authority of the Word of God. And, And if we do not believe that the Bible is essential In this unity of the church, then we're going to fall. Our house will be divided. We have seen this over and over and over in the last two decades. Where churches have said, oh, all of a sudden we believe that not all God's word is inspired. Now we believe some of it is, but it's the pieces that we believe fit what we believe. And there's other pieces, mm, not so much. And we will stand divided. We we have seen in Presbyterianism uh, the church divide. We have seen just in the last few years um, the Methodist church divide. We have seen in past decade the Lutheran church divide. We have seen these mainline denominations that have said... This is not all of God's word. There's just some pieces we can't buy that all of it from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is inspired. And so we stand divided and we see division in the church. We will see division in families. I will tell you in our extended family, there are those that don't believe that this is God's word. We stand divided. We are a household divided because there are those of us that believe that this is God's word and there are some in our extended family that doesn't believe that it is God's word. And what do we do? We certainly pray for those that we love and we care for that maybe do not know the Lord as Jesus, as their Savior, and and maybe do not believe that this is his word. But the house will remain divided unless it comes together in unity in this essential truth that this is the word of God. There is a reason that our ministerial committee and We have an elder, Sandra Pierce, is on our ministerial committee. There is a reason why they examine personally these individuals coming into our presbytery about the word of God. There is a reason that every person that comes in on the floor of presbytery is asked, what do you believe about God's word? And they have to answer that question. You say, well, that's gatekeeping. Amen. Amen. It is. It is gatekeeping. Because if they said, they would never make it to the floor. If they were before the ministerial committee and they spout some things that you hear out, they would never make it to the floor. Because that's one of our essentials, is that this is the word of God. If you are not for me, you are against me, Jesus says. So those are the two pieces that I wanted to lift up under the unity of the church about Jesus, Jesus and his word. But the other piece that I think Lincoln probably had right was this is a big deal. Unity or the lack thereof is a big deal. Conflict and division can be very destructive. And we saw that in our nation. We saw the strife and the division take place in the 1860s as we fought as a nation with each other. The the church is is no different. Strife and division should not be a part of the church. Reconciliation, resolution should be what we uh, uh, pursue in the church. And, And sure, there are times that there are disagreements There are times that we will disagree with one another. There are times when our words and our actions will irritate or even hurt someone. But our disagreement should never turn into a battle. The church should be a place where you handle the differences in the spirit of love. But hear this. Uniformity may not always be the norm in the non-essentials, but unity in the essentials is a must. There is no gray area when it comes to the essentials of our faith. But uniformity in the non-essentials, in other words, you may have an opinion that is different than someone else, But that should not bring division. It should not bring division. But I will tell you, most church battles occur over the non-essentials. We will stand on together often on doctrine. We will stand together on immorality and how that looks and how the scripture proclaims that. But often in the non-essentials, man, we will divide in a minute. Uh, I was reading a story this week about a church in Tennessee. And and, and this will will make you laugh. It'll make you kind of like, wow. Um, The church in Tennessee is called Left Foot Baptist Church. Left Foot Baptist Church. And so the name was gotten this way. This was a Baptist church who believed in foot washing. Of course, we know that the, uh, the, the last night, the supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and he said, and go and do likewise. And, and so in their worship services, often they would have foot washing. The problem came with the division in the church was whether you start with the left foot or the right foot first. And those that believed that you should start with the left foot when you foot wash for Jesus, they left the church and started Left Foot Baptist Church. (laughs) It's like, dang. The non-essentials. You've heard about carpet and paint and stained glass windows, and all the other non-essential things that come into play that battle in our churches. Today, some of the things that we talk about in the church is, should you stand or sit for the doxology, or should you um, have pews or chairs? Uh, There is a church near us that for a number of years— had chairs well someone decided that it was not church in chairs so they took all the chairs out and put pews in this ultra modern contemporary space what do you think happened to a number of people left it's like my goodness and then we hear Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12 that the church is the body of many parts and it is uh, important that we work together and encourage one another and that we're given spiritual gifts that we bring about the unity of the body of Christ. We're to work together, not bicker. We're to work together and not argue. We're to work together and not fight because when we do, we neglect what God has called us to do. So the question is, are we committed to the unity of Jesus? We live in this time that is just, it's a troubled time. We see heartache around the world. We see antagonism that takes place toward Christianity. Uh, we are seeing that much, much more today than we ever have in our nation. Many Christians today are discouraged, they're overwhelmed. They need encouragement from our fellow believers, but people are confused. Many in the church today and outside of the church are confused. They lack a sense of moral direction, purpose of life, Many in the world today have no hope and those are afraid of of what the future may bring and they probably should be if they are not in Jesus Christ because if they are not in Jesus Christ, then they are headed for eternity that is a separation from Jesus Christ. People today desperately need the truth and they need it in love. And they need to hear hope, the hope that is only found in Jesus. God has called us to be salt and light in this dark world. And often we get so consumed with our own conflicts that we don't do what God is calling us to do. We have a house or a church that is divided. And Jesus says that will not stand. We need to remember whose side that we are on. And join together with God in striving to offer his grace and mercy. To make a difference for his glory in the world. This parable of the strong man reminds us that Jesus has defeated Satan. Satan did not and cannot and never will defeat Jesus. And so we stand on Jesus, the strong man, who actually binds Satan and goes in and takes all that he has bound us with. That is what the parable is saying. When Jesus says, and can go in and plunder the house. In other words, Jesus can go in and strip those binds away from us. He can strip whatever is binding us. Jesus has defeated Satan. Satan. And then secondly, we need to remember that he calls us to stand on his side and no other. Because of what he has done, because of his life, death, and resurrection, that we have life in his name. Jesus calls us, church, to present a united front for him in this world for the sake of the gospel, and for his glory. May it be so. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this parable that again reminds us that you have defeated Satan. Father, thank thank you for Jesus and what he has done for us, that through him and in him, We are saved. So, Father, this morning, we stand on your side. We believe in your Son. We believe in your Word. And, Father, we come today proclaiming it. We pray, Father, we would live into all that you have called us to, not only as a church united for the sake of the gospel, but, Father, we would be united with you in our very life in all that we do, that we would allow nothing, Father, to bind us because you have broken those chains. Father, may we stand, may we stand with you in all things at all times for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.